You know, it's, I think it's good that as we've been in John 13, we're sort of looking at this whole story and then we're able to participate in it uh, to sort of do what they did. And, um, and I want you to think about the command that's going to be given here as we read through this. But before we do, I guess I want you to think about this question. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but how do you want to be remembered? I mean, when, when that day comes when there's a funeral and people are standing around, what will they say about you? How will they talk about you? How will you be remembered? We often call that a legacy. Oh, you remember what they did, what they left behind? And there's a guy by the name of Mark Gastineau, and he... Some of you remember when he played in the NFL and he was just a defensive uh, player that just created havoc and sacking quarterbacks all the time. And he set the record for most quarterback sacks in a season. And then um, he got mad because another defensive player by the um, name of Stranahan came along and got one more than him. Now he holds the record. And this was years ago, but just recently, this past month, uh, Mark Gaston has come forward and he's like, he's just mad. He thinks there was a time when a quarterback purposely fell down because he didn't want to get hurt. So they called it a sack. And so Stranahan got the count. That's not fair. It wasn't real a sack. He just fell down. So take that sack away from give me the record. I should have the record. And it's like, are you kidding? That was years ago. But what it comes down to is, is it this, that that's how he wants to be remembered by his record. By what he did on the football field. It's like, and because he didn't have that one sack, he's like, well, I guess I'm a nobody, right? I often tell athletes and coaches that, you know, nobody's going to remember your statistics for the season. Can you think back to the first game, how many points were scored, how many assists were made? Nobody remembers. But they'll always remember their teammates. They'll always remember the relationships through the season with their coaches, with their teammates. That's what people remember. They remember you, not necessarily your accomplishments. So we start off this passage today in John chapter 13 with asking that question, how are you going to be remembered? And I I say that because at the end of this chapter, Jesus is going to say, this is how you're going to be remembered. So we'll get to that spot, but I want you to think about it. We're going to get there. How are you going to be remembered? How will people know who you are, what you stood for? So as as here we are, John chapter 13, go ahead and turn there. We'll start in verse 18 eventually. Um, but let me give you a quick recap from last week to sort of catch you up to speed. Um, we talked about the disciples coming together in Jerusalem. They're meeting in the upper room. They're celebrating the Passover. They just did the Last Supper like we, were just, we just participated here. And now they're, they're having discussion, right? But before all that, when they first walked in, the disciples, they've been walking with Jesus and seeing his incredible miracles and touched the, the, the people that won't be the untouchables and healing people and walking on water and loving people, teaching great things. He's doing all these wonderful things. And, and he's, he's like the greatest, right? But the amazing thing is, as they're walking into the upper room, they're having a discussion about who's the greatest disciple. So they're arguing about it. They walk right, right past uh, the, the servant's water basin in which they, they should have actually grabbed onto. But... As they're, they're looking at what Jesus has done. We remember that this, Jesus is God in the flesh. God is love. Scripture even says in 1 John 4, 8, but anyone who does not know God, for God is love. God is love, period. He's not, it's not like, well, he's sort of this way at times. This is his characteristic. This is his DNA. This is an attribute of God. He is love. It isn't like, well, sometimes he's loving. He is love. Jesus comes to earth 
Love embodied, okay? And if we confess our sins to a holy God, place our faith in him, he adopts us as his children, giving to us his Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit has, gives us the power then to live for him. He loves us. We, uh, and when we see what he did for us, not just washing our feet, but washing our souls with his blood, it should amaze us. We should be compelled to love him back. But what happens and what we discover is that the real love of God being shown by sending his son was sort of overlooked. And maybe they didn't love him the way they should have loved him. But I think we would love God more if we understood the love of God. See, some of us, and, and, and sort of back this up a little bit, we're sort of like the disciples. We're so worried about who we are and what's going on. And we forget to really think about this, like, why should God love us? I mean, how could God love us? We asked that question last week. I mean, what have we done? Look what he did for us, sending his son. He is love embodied, gives up his life. That's love. What have we done to deserve that? I mean, let's face it. I sin, you sin, we mess up, we make mistakes. We do not deserve that love. So in the upper room, Jesus with his disciples, they have this discussion as they're coming in, who's the greatest. They walk right past uh, the water basin and the towel, as I said, and it's just sort of sitting there. Nobody picks it up. Nobody starts washing anybody's feet because the servant isn't there to do it. And Jesus gets up. Almighty God, Lord and Savior, gets up, takes off his outer garment, walks over, picks up the towel and the basin, starts washing the feet of the disciples. It's an amazing act of humbleness and love expressed, right? And then he sits down after doing all that and he makes a commandment to say, hey, like me, your master, I want you to do this. What you just saw me do, I want you to do this for each other. I want you to wash each other's feet. 1 John 3.19 says, we're not merely supposed to just say, hey, I love you, but let's show it with our actions. And Jesus wasn't like saying, hey, I'm going to have this great sermon on how you're supposed to love one another. He didn't even have to say a word. He just showed them. And they said, now you do this. When you do this, you're showing love for one another. And Jesus basically says, I don't have to say it. I'm going to show you, right? And then he says, you do the same thing. So how can we care for those who maybe need caring? How can we show hospitality to others? How can we show love to those who are unlovable? How can we uh, maybe uh, look for those who are by themselves, who are suffering, and say, can I help you? How can we show this kind of love? Because that's what Jesus is saying, right? Because if we see other people who have value... Because understand, that's what respect is. Respect is saying, I see that you have value, and I'm going to show you that you have value. When we disrespect somebody, we're basically saying, you don't have any value. So I'm not going to treat you if you have any value. That's called disrespect. So Jesus is saying, I want you to look at other people and say, they have value. Treat them with value. Show them love. And then we talked last week, we said, but what if they have dirty feet? As Jesus is going around washing the disciples' feet, one of those pairs of feet was going to betray him. He's washing another feet. He's going to deny him. All the feet of the disciples ran in the garden, deserted him. So whether we desert, betray, deny, or whether that's happened to us, Jesus says, I know what you're going to do, and I'm going to wash those nasty feet. I'm going to show you forgiveness. 
ahead of time. See, we mess up. We're going to mess up. But love says what? I'm going to cover up that mess with, with my love. Uh, love says I forgive you. Love is learning to forgive and not dwell on the sins of others. And when we start doing that, then we start tasting the love of God. As I said, the more you understand how much God loves you, the easier it is to love him back. And a lot of us maybe don't fully understand that. Some of us at, at times we're saying, well, I love him. Yeah, I really do. And, and I, don't you, can't you tell? I came to church today. I love him. And a lot of times we'll say we love God and we try to prove our love for God. But maybe we don't really love God. Again, actions will often tell what's going on inside. The disciples said they loved Jesus, right? And I believe they did. I really do. I look at the scriptures and I look and they loved Jesus. But what did they do? They ran. They betrayed. They denied. But eventually, as they got closer to their Savior, they loved and to the point where they gave up their life too. It took a while. But I was looking at this, and, and it took me out of the New Testament, the book of John, where we're at right now, to the Old Testament. So I'm going to put this up on the screen so you can see this. And you don't have to turn there, but it's in the book of Malachi. Because God was confronting his people on, I'm going to call this fake love. Okay? And he, he says, because um, God is true love, he says, this is fake love. He goes, the Lord of heaven's armies says to the priests, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? See, before Jesus arrived on this planet, God would speak to his people and through prophets and other people. And they would say, you know what? I want to show my love back to God by offering a sacrificial lamb. So they would make a sacrifice. They'd take this, that lamb in and they would put it before God and say, God, I love you. Here's my sacrifice. And uh, also, you know, forgive me my sins. I know I've messed up. And that's what they would do. Okay? So in Malachi, God says this. Whoa, whoa, a second. I want to address this whole sacrificial issue. You all say you love me. But what did he say? He goes, see, a son honors his father. And a servant respects his master. That's the way it rolls, Right? But if I'm your father, if I'm your master, if I'm your God, where's your honor and respect? Why would God say that to his people? Because here's what's going on. When you come with your sacrificial lamb to God to offer him, you give him your best. That wasn't happening. In Leviticus chapter 22, verse 20, it says this. Do not present an animal with defects. Because the Lord will not accept it on your behalf. Leviticus 1.3 says, If the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the herd, it must be a male with no defects. Bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle so you may be accepted by the Lord. See, no defects. God says, I don't want any defects. I don't want your blind lamb. I don't want your crippled lamb. I don't want your diseased or sick lamb. I don't want the weakling. Give me your best. No defects. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there's 40 plus times God says, no defects, no defects, no defects, no defects. Hey, no defects, no defects, no defects, no defects. So are you saying I shouldn't give you my crippled lamb? Hello? <laughs> right? No defects means give me your best, right? Bring me your best. Well, the people were sacrificing their sick, crippled, diseased lambs. That's why God is saying, doesn't a 
son honor his father? Doesn't a servant honor his master? Shouldn't you be honoring me? You're not honoring me. You're bringing me your worst. You're bringing me your crippled. You obviously do not care. You're giving me secondhand love. You're giving me your hand-me-downs. Anybody ever get hand-me-downs? I'm like the youngest of, of six kids. You got, yeah. You know what it feels like, right? Some of you don't, you don't you know what I'm talking about? Now, it's, it's horrible as a boy if you've got older sisters and you're getting those hand-me-downs. That's not good, okay? All right? But I have four older brothers. And so I would get their hand-me-downs until I got to the point in time and age when I was um, taller than them and bigger. Um, and I could no longer fit in their hand-me-downs. Then I got new clothes. But for years, it was like, hand-me-down, hand-me-down, hand-me-down. But when I finally got those new clothes that nobody else had worn before, that was pretty special, right? That's what God's saying. God's like, I don't want your second-hand I don't want your hand-me-downs. I want new. I want your best. It's God, after all, right? God doesn't want our hand-me-down love. He doesn't want our secondhand love. So how does God respond to this kind of sacrifice? He was upset at the people. See, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 in the New Testament says we're supposed to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, which means that I do not give God my leftover time. I do not give God my leftover money. I do not give God my leftover service. God says, I want your first and best. So when I put money in the tithes and in the offering in the blessings box, I'm giving them my first, I'm giving them my best. We get our check, boom, right off the top, that goes in the offering. Okay, now let's start paying for the bills. That's what we do. We give our time, we give our tithes, we give our best to God first. That's what Romans 12.1 is saying. They didn't bring anything of value to God. And neither do we when we fail to worship God or give to God or serve God. We, we fail. But... Think about this. And I put this in an email to everybody this week. I said, ask yourself the question, am I giving God my best? That's a fair question to ask. Do I make worship a priority? Do I give my time, my money, and my gifts to God? I mean, would you do the same for your spouse, for your family, for your best friend? See, when I, when I married Jenny, yeah, write her notes and told her I love her and did acts of kindness and love for her. But now, 27 years later, it's like, yeah, it's Valentine's. Ah, oh, now nah, she don't need a card. All I need to do is tell her I love her, right? See, that's what happens. When you love somebody at first, it's like you pour out and you pour out. But then eventually it's very easy to slip and show that love a little less because you're, already, you're sitting there thinking in your mind, they already know I love them. They know that, right? Have we ever done that with God? From that first time we got on our knees and we prayed and we said, come into my life, forgive me my sins. I confess I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Be the Lord of my life. And we were so sincere in surrendering our life to Christ. And we were so in love with a God who loves us. And then years later, do we still have that passion and that love for God? Or has it waned a little? Has it softened a little? It's a question to ask. And we need to be fair in asking that question. Because, but here, I want you to see something in the book of Malachi. It wasn't just the people that God was upset with. God was upset with the priests. He was upset with the priest. Now, Brian preached a few weeks ago on the roles of the pastor. And one of them is taking God's word and giving you God's word to feed the flock, right? And then also, I'm also supposed to help you grow in your relationship with Christ. That's part of my responsibility as well. That's what a good pastor does. That's what a good shepherd does with his sheep, right? 
and the priest in this situation here, they saw the sacrifices coming in. They brought in a lamb. Ooh, a little crippled. That's all right. Oh, that one's blind and broken and sick. Ah, that's okay. See, the priests were allowing it to happen. God was like, you know that's not your role. Your role is to make sure they bring in the best for me. And you've been letting that happen. See, I'm just as responsible to God. When I see you struggling in your faith, I'm responsible to encourage you, to help you, to hold you accountable. Sometimes it's hard because like, well, what, they don't like me anymore? What, they change churches? You know what? I need to be right with God and not so much with you. More so that I'm worried about being right with you and not with God. My role is to help you grow. The role of the priest was to help them do the right thing. And when the priest failed, when the pastor fails, the people fail. That was part of the role here. So I look at that scripture and I like, start asking, okay, what is true love? What is fake love? Fake love says, I love you, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Right? But true love, godly love, is, it's not just an emotion. It's, it's, it is devotion. It's an action. Love helps others, even when it's difficult. Love says, you know what, I'm going to humble myself. Love is being sympathetic. I'm going to step into your shoes and sort of feel how you're feeling so I know how to love you. Love is forgiving. Love is evangelistic. If you love somebody, you're going to tell them about Christ. When Jesus was sitting with the woman at the well, she was thirsty. She was getting water. He gave her water, but then he offered her living water. That's what love does. Love tells people about eternal life. After this, we read that Jesus is going to predict his betrayal. So let's pick it up here in verse, um, I guess we never did read it, verse 18. So let's go to 18, John chapter 13, 18. I'm not saying these things to all of you. I know so well each one of you I chose. The scriptures declares, for who shares my food has turned against me. And this will soon come true. I tell you this now so that when it happens, you'll believe I am the Messiah. Truly, anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me. And anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. And then as they take part in this last supper, verse 21, it says, Jesus was in great anguish of spirit. And he exclaimed, the truth is, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other wondering who he could mean. One of Jesus' disciples, the one who loved, the one Jesus loved, that's John was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him and said, ask him who would do this terrible thing. Leaning toward Jesus, he said, Lord, who is it? Jesus says, it's the one to whom I give the bread dipped in the sauce. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered him, that's Judas, and Jesus told him, hurry, do it now. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. Since Judas was the treasurer. Some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or to give money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. Picture this scene. Jesus is predicting his betrayal. He says he's troubled. He's full of anguish. And he says, one of you is going to betray me. It was Judas. We know it's Judas, right? Judas, but nobody else knew. As you read that scripture, nobody knew it was Judas. The like, one of you is going to betray me. Did, did any of the disciples like, it's got to be Peter. No, no. It's got to be Judas. Oh, yeah, Judas, Judas. Nobody knew. Even Peter's like, hey, John, you're sitting next to Jesus. Ask him, who is it? See, they're sitting at this triconium table. It's a low table. They're leaning on their left arms. They would eat with their right hand. And they would be leaning back so there'd be a person by them and then the person right here in front of me. So John was 
Let's say, I'll be John. I'm here. Jesus is right here. says, John, lean back into the chest of Jesus to talk to him, right? So Peter's like, ask him. Hey, Jesus, who's going to betray you? And Jesus is like, whoever I dip this in and give it to, that'll be the one. Hey, Judas, here you go. Now, understand this. When they came in, they are arguing about who the greatest was, right? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And as Jesus gets in, hey, Judas, why don't you sit on my left? You know what the left is? That's the position of honor. Jesus put Judas in the position of honor. And then here's John on the right. Nobody knew it was Judas. He had deceived everybody so well. And Jesus, even as he leaned back into Judas and let him dip in the, his bread, they still didn't get it. They were still like, hey, I wonder who it is. Oh, there goes Judas. He must be going to pay for something. I don't know. He's our treasurer. They still it didn't click with them yet. And it says that Satan entered Judas, and it was night. Now, you know in the book of John, night and dark is always contrasted. Light, dark, good, evil. Jesus is the light of the world. And it says as Judas went out, it was night. In other words, he became spiritually dark. And how does Jesus handle all that? He's troubled, right? Listen, he was sinless, but he still felt emotion, disappointment, and sorrow. That, and this is one of them. But he still loves them to the fullest of their extent. Love serves. Love forgives. Jesus still loved him. Love knew what was coming, that is Jesus, and he still submitted his life to God. Love submits. He's in the garden. He said, not your will be done, but, or not my will be done, but your will be done, God. I mean, Jesus had to submit to the will of God. It wasn't God who put him on the cross. It was love that put him on the cross. And that love was a submissive love to God. We go on to read. Look at verses 33 to 35. Dear children, I'm going to be with you only a little bit longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you'll search for me, but you can't come with me where I'm going. So now I'm going with you. Give you a new command. Love one another just as I've loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Here's what I'm talking about. How are you going to be remembered? He said, your love for me, that proves that you're my disciple. People know you are a follower of Christ by how you love one another. But he tells his disciples that he's leaving. He's basically saying, I'm going to die. And they don't fully get this, okay? But Jesus says, I'm giving you a new command. They go, a new command? And then he says, I want you to love one another. Like, wait a minute. We've heard this command before. See, we go back to Deuteronomy 6, 4, and that's the command to love God, right? Back in Old Testament, Moses says, hey, command number one, love God. Command number two we find in, later in uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and that's to love our neighbor as ourself. Jesus summed both of those great commands up in the book of Matthew chapter 22, 36 to 39, when the guy came to him and said, hey, teacher, what's the greatest commandment of the law? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, right? And then to love one another um, is equally, or love your neighbor as yourself is second equally as important, right? So he basically he's taking these two old commands in the Old Testament. Jesus puts it out here for him, right? So it's like, wait, didn't you just say you're giving us a new command? We've, we've heard these commands before. Here's what makes it new. As I have loved you, love one another. See, that's, that's new. Because see, we were just supposed to love one another. What he meant is, believers in Christ, you are supposed to love each other. 
That's new. Oh, and, and by the way, not just that, we're called to love with a sacrificial love. As Jesus Christ is going to give up his life, that's the kind of love we're supposed to have for other people. The kind of love says, I'll stop, I'll, I will jump in front of a car for you kind of love. That's sacrificial love. And then he goes, and what also makes this command new is that you're going to have God's spirit living in you to help you. That wasn't happening before then. Now it is. This is a new command that he gives us. Do me a favor. Would you all please stand up right where you Just go ahead and stand up. This is what I want you to do. I want you to, to just sort of look around to your left, to your right, and front and back. Look around. Okay? This, we're all different, aren't we? Different ages, different backgrounds, financially different, looks different, everything different, right? Everybody taking a look around? Church, listen. These are your one another's. These are your one another's. In case you ever get confused, like we're supposed to love one another as Christ loved us, these are your one another's. Not just that one person at home that you really love. These are your one another's. You can go ahead and have a seat. Thank you. Listen, sometimes we sit there and say, you know, loving one another, that's pretty easy. It's not always easy. But as a church, we've tried to love one another. We do a food pantry. Anybody in here can use the food pantry. And obviously, people throughout this community can use the food pantry. And we feed hundreds of people every month. At Christmas time, you may not know this, but we write a check to the school to pay for reduced lunches. How many days are in December? How many kids are on reduced lunches? Multiply that out. We send a check to the school so that every single child in the, in the Wauseon school system has, does not have to pay one single penny during the month of December for their lunches so that the parents can have that money to go buy Christmas gifts, whatever they need. Now, we don't toot our horn and tell you that all the time, but we've been doing that for years. matter of fact, one year we did six school systems. Just feeding kids. This year we also did something for some single moms and some individuals in this church who we thought could maybe just use a little extra love. So God laid upon our heart about 15 different people. And we got a, like a $200 gift card and a $100 gift card uh, for gas and basically gave them $300 at, at Christmas time and said, because we love you. You probably didn't know we did that for some of you, did you? I got a card back. We actually got a couple letters back from those we gave gifts to. And I asked somebody if I could read this one. They said, oh yeah, please do. And this is what they said. I just want to write you guys and say just thank you for the card and the generous gift. Last Sunday, that was the Sunday we gave this person their gift, our morning started out kind of rotten. I wasn't even going to come to church because I didn't have enough gas to last for work all week if I came to Wasian. Well, my brother came downstairs at the last minute and asked me to take him. And he needed to go to church. My plan was to ask my parents for gas money so I could go to work that evening, which I hate asking anybody for help. When I opened up your card, it was such an unexpected blessing, I cried for days. I cannot thank you enough. God really does know exactly what you need and when you need it. And I plan to, to use that gift card immediately. They weren't going to come to church on Sunday because they didn't have money for gas just so happens we had a card for that person to pay for gas. That's how God works. Now, let me tell you something. Why do I share these things with you? Because that's easy. That's an easy way to love one another, right? And that's what we're called to do. But sometimes it's not so easy to love each other. Sometimes, and I'm sitting there, I was watching basketball games in high school level, and I'll watch, I'll watch two teams playing from the local area, and I see kids on both teams that I know, and then I see our students 
and, and other student section, and they're yelling at the kids on the floor. And, I'm, and I know some of our kids in the youth group are sprinkled throughout some of those, those cheering sections. And I know things that are being yelled at the kids on the floor are not nice sometimes. And then I'm sitting there thinking, and I, it's probably awkward and hard sometimes for kids like, should I join in and yelling at those guys, even though I'm going to see them on Wednesday night at church? And it's like, that's hard because you feel like you need to join in and do what everybody else is doing. But you know what? Love says, knock it off. Love says, that's my brother and my sister out there. I'm going to cheer for my team and not cheer against the other team, right? But it's hard to do that sometimes, isn't it? It's hard when, you're, when your spouse maybe says something to you and you're like, mm, and you just want to, you want to have that tone back with your spouse. Maybe you would, maybe you want to yell at your spouse. Maybe you want to lift your voice up at your spouse and you just want to argue. It may not be your spouse. It might be your kids. But then you come across God's word in 1 Peter 3, 9. It says, finally, all of you should sympathize with one another, right? Love each other as brothers in Christ. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. I'm going to pause right there. It says where it says, love each other as brothers in Christ. Basically, that means love as brethren. And to love as brethren, the Greek word is Philadelphus, which is like Philadelphia, right? It means a brotherly love. In that verse, it had been talked about husbands and wives, but then it talks about the body of believers. And now we're talking about the body of believers. That's us, the one another. And, and it says, I'm supposed to love you as my brother in Christ and my sister in Christ. Here's the thing. Men, I don't know if any of you would ever come in here to church and just yell at my wife. And, and I hope I would never come into the church and yell at any woman. I would never hopefully raise my voice or have a mean tone with any woman in this church. Right? You know why? Because you're my sister in Christ. You are my sister in Christ. And I've been commanded to love you as my sister in Christ. Jenny is not just my wife. She's my sister in Christ. So if I raise my voice, if I get mad or I yell at her or I treat her bad, I'm a sinner. Because God's word told me love her as my sister. That's hard sometimes, isn't it? Because there's people in our lives that's like, I don't know if I could love them as a brother or sister in Christ. But if they are your brother and sister in Christ, you've got to love them. It's like, that is so hard. I get it. I know. I get it. But that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. And you know, that's why it's so important to understand you can't do it without Christ in you. Without Christ's spirit working in you, it's hard to love others. Uh, let me give you a little help. We're going to wrap this up. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4, says, Love is patient, love is kind. What if you were to just take the word love out and insert the name Jesus? Because after all, he is love embodied, right? Just, just sometime write it out and substitute word Jesus and then write it out again, but this time substitute your name in there. Rex is patient. Rex is kind. Rex is not jealous or boastful or rude. Yeah. Oh, that. Then I, I'm sure as I'm writing that, I'm going to go, oh, well, I was yesterday. <laughs> right? Oh, I blew that one. Make this a prayer then. God, help me to be patient. Help me to be kind. Help me to embody love like you did. I ask the worship team to come forward. Here's the thing. Before I can love like that, that we're being called to love, I have to taste the love. I have to experience the love before I can dish it out. How's your relationship with the God of this universe? How's your prayer time? How's your time in reading God's word? See, he loves to talk to us through his word. 
And our opportunity to talk to him is through prayer. And if we're not talking to him and he's not talking to us, there's no communication, there's no relationship. And there must be a relationship to experience that love so that we can take that love and go love others. A new command he's given us is to love one another as he loved us. You know, Simon Peter said, right after Jesus gives this incredible command, what does Simon Peter do? He's like, hey, Lord, where are you going? Like, Boo, squirrel, right? You know what I'm saying? He's like, did you not just hear the command? Uh, whatever the command is. You said you're going somewhere? Where are you going? It's like, Peter, this is a command. So the reason I share that with you, because Peter was a pretty awesome disciple, right? But even the disciples struggled. So if you're struggling with loving one another, I get it. I get it. God gets it. And he's just going to tell you, okay, you missed that opportunity. I'm going to give you another one and another one and another one. Don't miss those opportunities to love one another. Don't miss them. Would you stand, please? God commands us to love one another. Listen, God's, God's not creating the world today. He already did that. God is, is not sending Jesus to die for us. He already did that. What God is doing is working in us Christians through love in order that others that we do, who maybe do not know him, will know him. Love as Christ loved us. Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. I thank you, Lord, that we could worship you. I thank you we could take time today to remember you in the communion. And, but God, you did that with an incredible love. And after doing communion today, we have to ask ourselves, am I loving others as you've loved me? It's not easy, but we know we can do it because your spirit resides in us. So God, thank you. You are a faithful God. You won't let us wallow in this and struggle with this for long. You will, you're there. I trust you on this one, God. We love you, Lord. In God's name we pray. Amen.